it was just kind of like, you know, I'd look at him and say, you know, let's go, man. It's, you know, nine and a half. It's time to, it's your time to roll. And he'd look at me and say, need about another minute and a half coach. And I'd be like, Jesus Christ, I still hope we're in the game here. <laughs> another minute and a half. And then he'd go out there and he might even wait to, you know, he'd go up at a minute and a half and the ball wouldn't go dead. And now we'd be down to six and a half. And man, would that six and a half be amazing. I mean, you know, it'd be like every stop, a key steal, an offensive rebound, a three, a bucket, you know, just like, like he knew exactly how hard he wanted to play at that moment and how much was in the tank to be able to do that. And he just would gauge that every now and then. And and very, you know, what was what was going on. That was Raptors head coach Nick Nurse talking about his time with Kawhi Leonard. We got like 30 plus minutes with him. Why does everybody have him as one of the best coaches in the NBA? Todd Graves, founder of Raising Cane's Chicken Fingers, an amazing story out of Baton Rouge and an open monologue and life advice. It's the Ryan Russillo podcast presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA final starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming, so please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and older, 18 plus in D.C., and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. $5 doesn't get you what it used to get you. I asked for change the other day. The guy gave me back four. Introducing Arby's new two for $5 chicken wraps. In your choice of ranch, barbecue, honey mustard, and a bonus flavor called Incredible Value. Ever heard of it? You can't taste it, but boy, is it sweet. Arby's two for $5 chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. We have a lot to get to on today's podcast, so I'll try to make this brief off the top. Never really works out with me, but who do you pick in a feud? All right. We've had celebrity feuds for years. I was diving into those again, and I don't know that I want to bring up a ton of them because do I really want to pick some between Kanye West and Taylor Swift? Do I want to go like, no, I'm all the way team Taylor? I don't think I want to do that. Although defending Kanye recently doesn't seem to be all that great for anyone's career either. But that's the first thing that happens is you'll jump in and go, okay, what's happening? Let me assess the damage. And this is who I'm going to side with. And let's face it, like most of us who we pick has more to do with whether or not we like that person or dislike the other person. It probably has less to do with the point that they're actually trying to make. Why am I bringing this up? That's because we had one last night in the NBA that was pretty tame, actually. And Baysmore, who plays for the Warriors, nice win by the Dubs against the Jazz. But again, a lot of these responses where you're like, oh, man, what's wrong with the Jazz? You know what's wrong with the Jazz? Donovan Mitchell isn't playing right now. Moving on to topic number two. So Baysmore said this about you know people trying to keep up with Steph. Basically, he's like a Steph thing, like scoring title, what's going on with Steph, what's going on with Steph. And Baysmore said this, where he's basically hinting at Bradley Beal missing a couple games. 49 points in 29 minutes, though, that's that's unreal. And we got guys hurting hamstrings trying to keep up. So, yeah, I got to do some research on yeah. that. Oh, you got me, Monty. <laughs> okay, so now we start with 
whose side do you want to take? Now, the way it played out a little bit was like, ah, Bazemore was just joking. That was, I think, a little bit more than a joke. I think it was taking a shot at Beal. Beal, who's not afraid to log on and share his thoughts, goes at Bazemore. I don't do the subliminals. A lot of exclamation points. It's funny you say that because your man's admittedly checked my numbers before the game, but I'm chasing. Shut your ass up. Sorry, that was yo ass up, not your. And then we went with the old clown gif coming out from behind the curtains. Uh, Beal continued to keep tweeting. Like he was tweeting randos who would be like, man, never speak on another man's injury. And then, you know, I'm only concerned with Brad, all caps Brad. But we also know that Beal went at, what was it, Zach Lowe? And then the wife was involved or something. And then they were mad that Lowe had left him off of all NBA. But I don't really know what to believe in all that stuff. So I'm not even taking sides at that point. But we know this. If you go at Beal or you disappoint Beal, Beal's going to come back at you. So when you're Bazemore scoring like five a game, check that, and you're Beal going for the scoring title, and Bazemore's kind of taking a shot at you, and it wasn't mean, but I think it was a little bit more than a joke, then I think Beal was within his rights to be pissed about it. But like, who, who are you, man? Like, you're, you're not even like a top eight guy in a good team, and you're going to come at me, and I, I might win the scoring title? Like, what are you talking about? So I kind of get that part of it. But then we do this, because there's nothing nastier when the people are like, just tweet through it, bro, just tweet through it, because they know how mad you actually are, right? Or when you're not even mad and then people say it, it's probably more infuriating. But in this case, Beal was going to tweet through it and he was going to keep doing it. So then you're like, wait a minute, do I want to sign? Like, do I want to side with Beal in this deal? Because we also know this growing up, there was a kid in your neighborhood, a guy you went to high school with, or one of your roommates, or maybe beyond that, because you're immature, no problem, no judging, where there's one guy out of the group where you're like, hey, you can't really mess with him. And then you're like, well, why can't I mess with him? Like, we all mess with each other. Be like, yeah, he's just not as good with it. Like, well, what do you mean? Like, he's probably going to fight you or he's going to go like whatever one to two to three increments are. He's going to go to a thousand and it's just going to suck for everybody. Right. And that's the other thing that I think is always frustrating in any of these public fights and how they break out is because because people will be like, oh, just go ahead and take the high road. Now, I would probably advise most of you like taking the high road for the most part is the right advice but we don't always want to take the high road sometimes you're like no this person's wrong fuck him i'm going to say something back to him the problem with not taking the high road is is that when you're working somewhere and you don't take the high road even if you're right and you start criticizing people publicly but you're in some kind of industry where you might be changing jobs but it's all still the same industry it's a small world and then everybody's kind of judging you right your exit is your first part of the interview at the next place but if you're Bradley Beal, you don't have to take the high road. You're getting max money no matter what, and all other 29 teams would gladly take you. So if you're not going to take the high road, you better be really special at what you do. But, you know, I think about my, my industry sometimes where it's like, yeah, we had media fights. We used to have writer on writer stuff, but now writers, because that part of the industry is so much more challenging than it was when I was growing up, I think writers are incredibly supportive of each other. All right. You know, like I'll see a writer quote tweet some other writer's piece and be like this is the best daredevil movie breakdown i've ever seen please read my friend's work and you're like is it do i have to stop everything i'm doing to read a daredevil retrospective today maybe i will that was quite the sell it's more if there are any media beefs it happens with people that are on the air um in an opinion way because look any of us that are super opinionated like we all get it right we're, we're all 
like I always kind of explain this to people and be like, hey, do people like you? Do people not like you? I go, you know what? I don't know how much I'd like me. I don't know if I were like, hey, you know what I like is that guy who's opinionated about everything for like 20 straight years. That's a lot. That's an aggressive place to kind of live. And if people don't like me, I'm almost like, yeah, okay, that's cool. Like, I get it. Because there's other people that I like. I like the person, but there'll be there'll be just a a, a portfolio of opinions and takes where I'm like, I don't even know if I want to be friendly with you because I think some of your NBA takes are such dog shit, right? So sometimes those beefs can play out. And sometimes you're like, hey, I'm just going to say something because I'm right and that person is wrong. And when you feel wrong, that's a lot of fuel for you to do anything. And even when you want to play it out publicly, I mean, this isn't completely related, but it was really weird how this kind of took off. Saruti, I don't know if you saw this, but this made it to the ESPN feed. We're talking like 30 million followers on that feed. This played out all over social media where a mom took a picture of her kid who, I don't know, was eight and it had a hat trick in a youth soccer game, and he's holding up the three. He's got that that little sweat you get when you're eight. He looks like a heck of a kid, all right? And he's holding up the three. He's got the hat trick, and she quote tweets it like he was cut from his soccer travel team when he was five and never let them tell you who you can't be. And she's thinking like, look, it's your kid. He was upset when he was five because he was left off a team. And now you feel like that's the fuel for you to fight back with everybody else and basically like show up that coach. And then then everybody else is taking that and be like, yep, 100. But like he was fucking five. He got cut from a team. Like it happens. Congrats on the hat trick at eight. But in that moment, the mom, because this is what parents do, you're protective, you feel like you're right, and you're going to take it to everybody. You're going to share it with everyone because you're going to get back at that. So as we bring this all full circle, the lesson out of all of this is that we probably don't really care who's right or wrong in these beefs. We probably don't even care about the point that's being made because some of you are going to look at Beal and say, hey, Beal's the better basketball player than Bazemore, so Bazemore has to be wrong. Unless, of course, you're a Warriors fan where you're like, that's good. Because it's actually a vote for Steph and not Bazemore. So, Rudy, anything to add to that? No. I mean, first off, uh, Kent Bazemore, seven points per game. So, put some respect on his name. Uh, he uh, he quote tweeted a thing I did. So, I think Baze and I are You guys are, are boys. Cool. Yeah. Baze kind of seems like that a guy around the league that other guys in the league don't like, though. He just seems like kind of an, I don't know an agitator type doing. I get it. He has Steph's back. And I think there's this other aspect of Beal too, where it's like, is, is Beal, Beal's been good, straight stats, bad team guy. Right. And I wonder if other guys in the league kind of look at that and they're like, well, my boy, Steph, you know, obviously he's won MVPs. He's won championships. Like put some respect on his name too. I don't know. I, I just, I think Beal took it too far. Like, do you subscribe to the, you know, the lion shouldn't worry about the opinion of a sheep here? Because I kind of think Beal looks a little weird for, for, quote tweeting a bunch of people that are now taking his side like I think that's too far maybe say one thing about it but if you're quote tweeting a bunch of randoms about this like clearly this is like way too far in your head for a guy who Beal is going to be probably an all NBA guy this year well the best is when it's just a random who's going at like the celebrity going hey dog like I got your back and just looking for a retweet right right and then it's like but I still don't think that many people that are public figures would retweet the random coming to the rescue in the argument so, yeah, that part of it's real. like I'm not all about Beal here on the, yeah, handled it perfectly. But what I do know 
is that I'm less likely to be critical of somebody that's just kind of getting pissed at everybody on social media because I think those rules are completely unfair. Like everybody that's a public figure is just supposed to never go at anybody. And then it's also so hypocritical when it's the guy who's like, well, don't punch down. I never punch down. I don't do this. You're like, bullshit. Like you punch down. So what's the point? Like I'm only supposed to go at Cowherd, Bill Simmons, and <laughs> and and who? Like so, wh- where am I on the? Like I can go at Stephen A. I can go at Kellerman. I, I'm just trying to think of like who would have a higher like platform than me. But if a guy in local news went at me, I'm wrong for ever going at that person. Like the rules don't mean the rules are the rules by everybody else not in the conflict. That's the point, and that's what drives me. Look, look, I'm ex- exaggerating here because it doesn't drive me crazy. I don't spend like it's, it doesn't revolve around my day. I don't do it. I think I've done it a couple times ever in my entire life because for the most part, it's always a waste of time. But if somebody decides, fuck it, I'm just going to go at somebody else. I don't know that any of us are right in telling that person to not go at anyone. It's not that about makes any sense. No, it's, it's for me. It's not about going at them. Like, I don't I think he has the right and it would be totally reasonable to. If, if he just tweeted out the clown coming from behind the curtain thing, I think that would have been funny. I would have probably been more likely to take Bradley Beal's side in this. But then retweeting all these people going on first take this morning. Uh, all right, man, it wasn't that much of a diss to me. Like, I, you know, yeah, it was Bazemore being kind of a dick. Sure. But I don't know. It wasn't. It, yeah, skin. you're right. It wasn't that bad. Yeah. It is kind of like the roommate thing, though, where you're like, hey, if you mess with like, hey, let's pull a prank on on Dave. And you're like, yeah, don't don't pull a prank on Dave. And then you're like, man, Dave isn't going to be, we're not going to have as much fun with Dave. And you're like, look, he's just, Dave's wired a little differently. Like if you steal his shoes, he's going to, he's going to slash your tires and he's going to think you're even. Uh, getting back to, by the way, the five-year-old kid getting cut. Um, I don't, what I don't understand about that either is, so she's saying, the mom is saying, Hey, you know, you can be anything. Don't let anyone tell you, you can't do something. You can be anything you want to be. He's eight. He's not even anything yet. He's not, he's not even adult. He's not even He's he'll, he's basically just barely out of the toddler stage. So what are we doing? So I, I look at that and I just say that's the mom looking for retweets because she knows SportsCenter is going to pick that thing up and run with it. And she's going to get famous. I can't believe uh, you're right. I mean, she was she was looking for the the attention off of it, but I never even believe anything's real ever anymore. That one is l- probably a little more likely to be real. So let's just say it's real. I just couldn't believe that other major outlets would be like, "This is so dope, humanity, so cool." Be anything you like, want. Like, are we going around checking in with eight eight year olds, being like, "Who's doubted you? Where Where are you at now? You want to say anything to the haters? Be like, I'm I'm eight. Maybe he wasn't good at five, and he's good. There's now, a really too. good chance. <laughs> th- th- yeah, there's a really good chance. It's a really on. good. Ch- it's okay. Imagine if the coach came boomer. out was like, "Look, he was slow. He picked his nose. He ran in the wrong direction. He fell down all the time. They never his shirt was never clean. You know, one of those families you can never find the uniform day of the game. You know." Yeah, it just didn't have his head in the game. You know, he wasn't locked in. He grew three inches, and you know, maybe he's a little better. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, he wanted to tell you his his legs got bigger. All right, um, let's talk with Nick Nurse. We got Todd Graves and life advice at the end. This episode is supported by State Farm. So look, a little rock hit your dude's windshield on the highway, and at first you're like, "What is that?" I'm like, "Oh, it's just a little mark." Nope. Now, by the end of the ride, it's a big crack. And it had been a while. So I check out the State Farm app. I go, hey, this is what happened. And the funny thing is, is I was like, do I want to go app first or do I call old school guy? Probably should call. I was like, let's check out the app. Not only did it take a minute to get done, they set up the glass replacement. 
they told me the estimate ahead of time, said, you want to go ahead with it? And I was like, now I understand it's all in front of me, all done. I don't even have to talk to anybody. That's how efficient the insurance game has become. But really, the only words you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options, protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, just like I did, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to somebody. The app was so good, I didn't even need to do that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. You know what I hate, hate, is after lunch, there's all this time before dinner. I hate it. So I'm always like, do I do this? It's like, you should. Gain season? Throw in a little something extra, an appetizer that just starts hours before dinner. It just gets so frustrating when there aren't great options. That's where Arby's new two-for-five-dollar chicken wraps come in. Available in your choice of ranch, barbecue, and honey mustard. They're perfect for that afternoon snack attack or as an add-on to your meal. Food buddies. Arby's two-for-five-dollar chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. Nick Nurse, head coach of the Raptors, with us on the podcast. Okay, we know this season has been tough uh, for for a lot of different people, but your franchise in particularly, you had a 16 and 15 record at one point, you know, and I watch you guys quite a bit. And then you're like, oh, okay, they've got games they've missed. Players are missing games. Staff is missing games. You guys are in Tampa. I know everybody can kind of look at certain elements of the season where it was challenging, but what happened to you guys, you think? Well, I think that um, there was a number of hurdles to jump, you know, right from the start with relocating everyone um a bit of a bit of a roster flip you know we lost uh, a couple very experienced very good um pieces to free agency and mark Gasol and serge Ibaka. um and then and then it you know i think it was bumpy to get through we got through we started playing really well ryan i think we won at brooklyn we won two at milwaukee we came back and beat philly at home and and uh, i think we even with that 16 or 15 record or whatever it was, we were in fourth in the East and, and then we got wiped out by COVID and the protocols, I think uh, seven players and seven staff, and then a couple more players a little later. And, and that would took a lot longer than the 14 day kind of sit out, you know, we, you know, we kind of started filtering some guys back in, but we just didn't feel quite right. Myself included. <laughs> and then, and then it was just kind of, we went, we just had a month that just was like almost wiped off, you know, from us. And we just never really recovered. Is it harder for a team? You know, you're a couple seasons now removed from a championship run. Um, some of the core guys are still there, but obviously the loss at, at the big positions was, was something you're going to have to get through this year. Is it harder to keep a team motivated that has higher expectations for itself than maybe a team that doesn't have those expectations? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say um, I think we were pretty motivated, Ryan. I think we also were used to winning a lot. I think a couple of those losses in our, you know, we had a rough start, two and eight, I think. I think two and eight, and I think we led maybe seven or eight of those games by double digits at one time. I think we had the ball either go in or out at the buzzer, three of them, none of them in our favor. Um, you know, so that we were playing some pretty good basketball, but we weren't, didn't have anything to show for it. And I think, you know, with the expectations and 
kind of the winning um, that we've been used to was tough to deal with um, a little bit. But again, I think that, um, you know, I can sit here today and say to, you know, the last six to eight weeks have been pretty enjoyable. I mean, I know we're not in and we wanted to, we certainly had different visions of how this season would play out. But at some point when we kind of got over the COVID hangover, (laughs) you know, and people kind of started feeling better and, and got in shape again and we kind of just decided to kind of take a deep breath, get back to work, start enjoying practice a little bit. And we look a lot more like ourselves, even with a very depleted roster, um, a lot of guys out and all that stuff, like, like a lot of teams have had. So I'm not, but I, but we were back to playing the way we want to play. We were back to practicing. We were back to preparing. We, we just felt more like ourselves. even, even now, you know, where we went out on that West coast road trip and went one and three, but, we beat the Lakers and every one of those other games. Uh, well, two of the three were tied with a minute to go, you know, against the best teams in the West, Utah and the Clippers. And, you know, so, you know, we're playing some good basketball. And we're still missing a lot of guys, you know. When you made your run two years ago, yeah. I remember, you know, just watching because you guys were one of the main stories. And, you know, through the regular season into the playoffs, it just kind of dawned on me. It dawned on me later than I wish it had. But I go, there's something about this team where I felt like your top six or seven guys, like what I love is shot clock creators because in the playoffs, it comes down to you guys can run all your stuff. You can do all these things, but like, you know, somebody's going to get the ball like 30 feet away with six seconds left going, all right, figure it out. And like, those are the guys that make the money. I and, love those guys too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, they make your life a little easier. But I'm, I'm serious. This is no exaggeration. Like I watch and be like, you know what? I think they have like six or seven guys that if they had to get their own shot off, they could. Was that a conscious thing from the front office? Is it something that you discovered? Because I think that's actually a little bit more rare. That I mean, hell, you go back just 10 years ago, maybe yeah. you'd be lucky to have two of those guys. I think that was one of the great things about your offense. Well, I think that that I can sit here and think about situations and, you know, when certainly when you got Kawhi and they're, they're sort of totally scheming against what are we going to do with him and who's going to guard him and who can guard him and things like that. Um, and Danny was just a veteran guy that would, you know, he might, you know, literally one game, I know he he was like, Oh, for six. And I drew up a play for him. And I said, we need you to make this bro. And he made it, you know, like, and you know, you can still do that with him because he'd been around the block so many times. And, and then, and then again, though, to answer your question, it got to the point where it wasn't so much that let's say we, we had to go to Kawhi, but we didn't want to, we, we, we wanted to, move Draymond out of the equation or something. So it'd be Fred and Pascal. Everybody think, well, they're going to come down and go Kyle and Kawhi pick and roll or whatever. And we flip it to Pascal and, and Fred. And those guys were playing so good that we could get, you know, we could, you know, buy three or four buckets before we'd have to go back to you know, to Kyle and Kawhi. Cause like you said, it's like you need long stretches of that kind of stuff in, in the deep in the playoffs. I was reading that story about, you know, one of the things you shared with Kawhi. So I don't know if I'm necessarily asking you to to tell the story again, but the specific part of him where he knew kind of exactly what he needed yeah. and then he would go ahead and give it to you. Because I think a lot of us from the outside, we still can't quite figure him out. Like yeah. the, the best information I ever got on Kawhi when he was deciding on what to do as a free agent was if someone tells you they have intel, then don't talk to them anymore about Kawhi. Because that's that's the only thing I can tell you. And it ended up being the best information. But, you know, you were with him. You have this magical year. What are some of those specific things about him that you learned about him that you had no idea about? 
Well, that was the that was the well fun, interesting part about it. It wasn't like we sat down and had this discussion, you know, like prior to the game. He's like, listen, coach, I'm gonna let you know in the fourth quarter, you know, when I'm exactly ready to go back in. You know, it was just kind of like, you know, I'd look at him saying, you know, let's go, man. It's you know, nine and a half. It's time to it's your time to roll. And he'd look at me and say, need about another minute and a half, coach. And I'd be like, Jesus Christ, I still hope we're in the game here. <laughs> Another minute and a half. And then he'd go out there and he might even wait to, you know, he'd go up at a minute and a half and the ball wouldn't go dead. And now we'd be down to six and a half. And man, would that six and a half be amazing. I mean, you know, it'd be like every stop, a key steal, an offensive rebound, a three, a bucket, you know, just like, like he knew exactly how hard he wanted to play at that moment and how much was in the tank to be able to do that. And he just would gauge that every now and then. And, and very, you know, what was what was going on? I think a lot of us are always still kind of confused too about, you know, clearly he was upset about, you know, the medical part of it. You guys, I think, did everything you could do to make him feel comfortable and to just monitor it, you know, however you were going to use him. I mean, he actually missed a decent amount of games that season. It just didn't really seem like it mattered. And because of how methodical he is, because it's it's shoulders and it's wingspan and it's angles, and then there'll be a flash of like, oh, there it is again. Did you understand kind of week to week with him, game to game of where he was physically? Like, how did you figure that out? Because I think some of us, I know I am at times with somebody who say, oh, he's still going to miss games because it's never going to go away. You're never quite sure. And then you'll have these moments with him where he looks like he's the best player in the league again. Yeah, I think that goes back to your your other question. I think in February, you know, he was cruising to getting 31, 33. And, and I was sitting there watching him going, he's not even giving a full effort here. Right. I mean, I was sitting, you know, you sit there and why he was just kind of getting what he needed to get. There was some, there was a lot of times too. He'd, he'd be just rolling, you know, and I might whisper to him and say, Hey man, go, you, you might go for 45 tonight. And he goes, nah, I'm good. You know, and like 33 and he'd check him, you know, he, he was never like going to do that stuff. And I was kind of be like, man, this guy's interesting. And, 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 and I, and I, thought that they like he had a playoff year but I hadn't been with them right I, I was you know just thinking that I it, there's got to be a gear and man was there ever Oof. was there ever yeah I still think his hard dribble to like one of the elbows pull up just there's not yeah. you're not going to get close to him because of the wingspan and his size and his strength yeah, and it's the shoulders, man. He, yeah, he, he just he gets, gets him into you and he settles. A little part of one of his shoulders on you, and you're he's, he's created the space, and and it, like he doesn't even feel, you know, don't feel anybody. So this year, one of the other big things was, you know, hey, what's the future, Kyle Lowry? Yeah. You know, there's there was a lot going on, and then he stays. We know he's a free agent. You made the Trent deal because Powell was up. You've invested in mm -hmm. Van Vliet. I don't expect you to say like, yeah, man, we can move on and hand the reins to somebody else because Kyle means so much to this franchise. But what do you expect to happen with his future in Toronto? Well, I think, um, you you know, you said a lot. I mean, for, first thing is, Ryan, he's he's been incredible to work with. Um, I think his, you know, ask me about moments or ask me about Kyle. One, I, I've never seen anybody play harder. Like there's some flurries in games where he can – four minutes where he can make a three, steal the ball, take a charge, <laughs> drive in, knock three people over, lay it in, steal it again. I mean, just like, it's like, how does he like do this uh, in a flurry? And I just have never seen anybody play harder, really, 
up close or in the stands or anywhere that I've been. So that's like the ultimate compliment I could give them. And then it was good to see him kind of break free in the playoffs too. You know, that was kind of a, a process for a few years. And, and then he had that monster start to game six in the finals that you can never really forget. Um, to me, he, he's still like, uh, he's still the same guy. I mean, another year or two's ticked by, he still puts his body on the line. He still guards hard. He still scores. His numbers are good. His shooting percentages are good. And he's a tremendous talent. And, um, you know, I hope we keep him. I mean, I, I, I think he's part of our core. Kyle Fred, OG Pascal are kind of our core guys. And we've got a couple other guys growing kind of on the wings, you know, with uh, Boucher and, and, you know, we brought in Trent and Kem Birch has now kind of surfaced up to be a nice, nice big that we just brought in here late and there's you know there's some- i've always liked ken birch i gotta tell you i don't know i don't know why i'm i'm hanging on to that ken birch. i just always liked him <laughs> as a rotation big because yeah. i think he cares i think he's tough yeah. i think he he makes you feel him you know and however many minutes you're supposed to get out of that guy so i i, I always kind of like what you guys do with the roster I, I i'm always like hey that guy can play a little yeah. I mean, every time you bring in somebody, I'm like, you know what? Those are guys outside of your rotation where when they got rotation minutes and somebody else was missing, it didn't feel like there was as much drop off where there's other teams where you can just tell at like nine, 10, you know, maybe those guys wouldn't even be in an NBA game. Yeah, we've we've had to, you know, we got a little practice with that. Like you mentioned before with Kawhi that year, he missed 22 games that year and we went 17 and five. You know, it was like, um, that's pretty good. <laughs> you know, that's pretty good. And I think that no, it's nuts. No, that that little um, you know history or or um, whatever we were whatever those games gave our guys confidence going into the next season when he when he left. I think that you know I think you know everybody thought we we're gonna have a huge drop off. Well, they didn't really watch us play much the year before without him, and I think it just kind of kept on rolling. And that's just that's just you know guys that were dying for some opportunity. Guys that were working hard every day, waiting for it. To, and here it was, you know, here it is for Pascal to take a step or OG to kind of come back in the fold or or Freddie to take a few more opportunities, you know. So, um, I don't know. You got to be ready these days because you got to be able to kind of roll out 12, 14 guys in a regular season now, right? Your story is incredible. I mean, I could do a 30 for 30 just on that because of all the, the travels. You're from Iowa. I've, I've stated numerous times in this podcast. I think we start at Iowa. The people of Iowa are ranked number one, and then we just work our way down the next 49 yeah. states. I'm not I'm not saying that because you're on the yeah, pod. I have I have connections to the state, and you just meet somebody. And you're like, where's that guy from? And you're like, he's from Iowa. And you're like, makes sense. Makes sense. So northern Iowa, you shoot the lights out. You end up all over the place. And then, you know, you come back to Toronto, not come back, but you're, you start in Toronto 13 as an assistant. And I, I think to be nice, pro athletes aren't like, you kind of start at zero with them if you didn't play. <laughs> okay. And that's why I think you're the league, <laughs> if you're lucky, you start at zero. <laughs> so the buy-in is always a little tough. I would think because you were there with, with Dwayne Casey, that there's, there's a, there's obviously the relationship like, hey, he's this guy and you take over uh, in 2018. But are there still moments where they don't know that you lit it up at Northern Iowa? Like, where they look at you as, as Nick Nurse, career assistant, now the head coach? And 
you know, you still never were out there because I just think NBA guys, maybe more so than any of the pro athletes, will tune you out immediately. And that's why I think so many former players, high-profile guys, are getting jobs immediately with no coaching experience because there's still that relationship buy-in that yeah. you just can't you can't have it if you don't have it. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think you're right. The very first time I probably got up in front of the team as an assistant to do my scout, uh, you know, they're not like that secretive about, you know, you're here and who in the hell is this minor league guy? You know, you can, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not, they're not kind of keeping it. They want you to hear it type of thing. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, I, I say this, I think that you, you're right. Like they want to be coached, but they want to be coached really well. And if you're not going to coach them really well, you're not going to last very, you know, they're, they're going to, they're going to give it to you and they're going to get off you pretty quick, I think. So um, I mean, listen, I was a head coach for about 20 years and put my own game plans together at a lot of places, nothing like the NBA, but you go up there and you, you work your butt off to get prepared and you work your butt off to practice exactly how it's going to come out and your speed and all that. So, you know, you got to do a professional job goes from there. Um, listen, you know, in, in 18, I was, I was, we were having a lot of success as you know, and and uh, I was getting interviewed just by about every team that had a job open. So I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm going to have a really good chance of being a head coach next year. Toronto was the last place I thought it was going to be. But that's how it all ended up shaking out. And um, I had some good insider locker room knowledge. You know, as an assistant, you spend a little more time with the guys at night at the gym shooting, you know. And I, I think there was a lot of things I knew they really liked. And there was a couple of things they thought we could improve on. And I, I kind of knew what those were. So it made it a pretty good transition for me. I mean, listen, you know, Kyle, we brought him up already. He did, you know, like he just came, he came and told me like, okay, I know you as an assistant. I don't know you as a head coach. Uh, you know, like he wanted to see what I was going to be like and how different I was going to be and stuff like that. But I think he always knew we had a, pretty strong relationship from a play calling and a game plan deal. And that's what he, you know, he wanted, he wanted to be, he wanted good game plans and he wanted to, a chance to be successful. So let's get to that and, yeah. and share with me what you can help me understand it. Because when I'll talk to other teams it'd be like, Hey, you know, who's doing something awesome is Nick nurse or someone will send me like an advanced guy, younger guy, send me a clip of something you did on help and how you close out JJ Reddick, who, when I went on with his pod, like he with unprompted, he just went, Oh man, v uh, Vucevic, who I had on this year. And he just was like, Oh yeah, Toronto, Toronto. So what the hell is it? What is it? So that uh, the basic basketball people, all of us can kind of understand what it is and how you see concepts and defensive, like what are the things that you're doing that get other people talking about it? Well, first of all, I want to, I want to kind of say that that group that we had that won the title could do incredible things like on the fly. I mean, literally like things I'd never seen a team do before. Let's say we, uh, we wanted to double cousins in the post or something, you know, he was playing for golden state and why would you want to double cousins? Well, post, just cause he I'm was, just, I'm just screwing. Yeah, no, I'm just, you know, <laughs> just, you know, just, he's big and he can score. Down I'm just messing. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm screwing know, up the I'm answer. Just, I'm just giving you an example. And, and you know, that, that he wants to, he feels really a lot more comfortable turning one way than the other, let's say turning right or whatever. And, and so we'd say, well, let's, let's, um, not let him turn right and let's double him from below. Right. And, and well, 
the other coach is smart too. He sees what's going on. So he says, okay, we'll put him on the other side of the, put him on the other block if they want to make, make him go that way. And then I'd tell the guys, now we can't, you know, now we got to send him middle and they'd be like doing it on the fly and, and still that changes all the rotations and everything, but they were so like in tune with each other. They could do it like from one time out to the next, or even at a free throw to the next, like that's incredible to be able to do that stuff. You know what I mean? Like on the fly, I mean, like, boxing one we didn't you know we didn't like practice that very much we just kind of you didn't practice that so like talking about it right like that boston series was just a fun series and you guys go boxing one on on kemba yep and you know it it, it, by that time we talked about it yeah that was that was part of the game plan going in there that night but i'm just saying like the first time we did it i just kind of looked out there and said to kyle i said here's what i think is going to work we're going to have freddie go nose to nose on Steph and this is what the box is going to look like. And he said, I love it. And he went into the huddle and sold it to everybody else. And of course, you know, you need a lot of luck on those things. And I think they turned it over the first two possessions. So your, 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 your lucky roll of the dice comes up. Right. And and then they have a little more open mindedness to try some other stuff. That, that is really hard though, because the help part of it is the part where you can see be like, oh, they don't even know what they're supposed to do on this. So then on the fly, boxing one, which these guys probably haven't done since like an AAU tournament, if they even did it then. Yeah, Steve Kerr said it was uh, ninth ninth grade was the last time he got boxing one. <laughs> but then it's the other four guys and be like, well, what am I, how am I helping? Am I helping off of Steph? But I always think it screws people up when you drop some kind of zone. I love the zone out of a timeout on an inbound. I love all that stuff. I think people are a little bit more aware of it. I feel like it completely derailed people before because then you just, a lot of teams just still don't understand. Like, I don't want to set any screens in the zone, but like on the help stuff and the closeouts, Mm -hmm. will you know a certain, like I always think corners. Okay. So it used to be kind of like, oh, look at that's cool. They saw the help coming off the corner and they skipped to the opposite. Now everybody knows it to the point where somebody will bait you into it and then dive back out. And, you know, there's all these different counters. But will you have everyone who would defend the corners understand who they're helping for? Like, hey, if this guy's in, you're helping off. But if this guy isn't, then you're staying there. Like, that's a really hard thing to yes. do to make sure everybody remembers the help rules, every possession based on options, right? That that's where it gets really tricky. You're making like a really good point here. Like, you know, there's kind of a foundational principle of help and rotations. You know, you can kind of say, you know, if it goes here, you go here, go here. And then you say, well, wait a minute, that's Clay Thompson in the corner. We don't ever want him. We don't ever want to help on him. So now you're saying, okay, we're running this system, but we're not leaving Clay. So that's going to put this guy in, a, you know, so, so now he's got to, he's going to have to cover two somewhere, but, but Clay's not going to touch it. So you're, you know, you're, you're saying to him, listen, again, you're rolling the dice a little bit and you're saying, we got to take this guy out. We're going to live a little bit with this guy and, and they're going to make some like, let's not, let's not panic or hang our heads or, or question the coverage or they're going to make some, but over the course of several possessions here, we think this is the right thing to do. And, you know, I said, if they do make one, take it out and race it down the other way and try to make one really fast back. And you know, let's get back into it or whatever. So it's, it's a lot of that stuff. And, and um, that, again, is the level, like I was telling you, that championship team could, could do. And then, then you start doing it. You know, you're like, you know, you're like, okay, remember when we did this against Philly in game four and five? Well, now that's what we're doing again tonight against Mill. You know, you're, you're, you're taking some of that. It's in your toolbox. And you're taking 
you know, you're naming certain guys. Remember how we played Embiid on this, on the mid pick and roll. That's what we're doing with, with um, Lopez tonight or whatever it is. You know, I'm just throwing names out there. Do you think though that you game plan more with game to game than other staffs do? I do not know that, but we, I think we, I certainly believe in that. You know, I, I, I think that um, it's, it's not easy to do. Again, you have to have a, a level of, of IQ and, and, um, focus and stuff to do it in time. Sometimes, sometimes you don't really get a chance. You got back to backs and things like that. And, and, um, but we, we try to, we, you know, we got our foundational principles in and we got some other things that veer off that kind of severely at times. Now, I also would think having Adrian Griffin on staff, which longtime listeners of the podcast, uh, know my affinity for his game. And I went up to him at the combine one year and was like, Hey, my name's Ryan. And he was like, yeah, I, I know who you are, you know, cause I've been in ESPN for a while. I was like, I just want to let you know that you're one of my all time favorite NBA players. And he was like, is there an open bar at the combine this year? Or what, what's going on? It is impossible to explain. And you might've been in, you know, Belgium at that point, he played like a hundred games with the Celtics yep. and he's, I don't, I can't say he's the smartest NBA player I've ever seen, but there's a level of the way that he saw the game. It's impossible for me to explain to anybody unless you just watched him. And it wasn't like he had this amazing career. He came into the league late. He's just journeyman. I know his son's committed to Duke, who's, who's mm-hmm. a stud. Um, I may just tell him I said, what's up? I'm, I'm the biggest Adrian Griffin fan ever, but there's just a way he saw the game, which I hope one day he gets to share as a head coach because it was so different than what you see from 99% of play. I'm serious about this. That's yeah. how special he saw the game. Yeah, and he went to work on the game when he got done playing. He's put in his time as a coach, to, and he's been around a lot of really good coaches. Like, he he gets up in front of that group, and, you know, they're buying what he's selling, right? Yeah. And, and, and he's also got command, too, when they, you know, if they're messing around or whatever, and he'll just, just be like, hold on here, we're just trying to learn. And, and you know, it's, they're back in focus, so he's – He's a, as you know, a great person, um, super hard worker. He was a really good. It's great to listen to him as talk about himself as a player. You know, he's a humble guy. He doesn't. I'm do sure it he downplays yeah. it because I mean, yeah, he's still he, he was a role guy. So people will be yeah. listening to this. They're going to go look at his stats and think I'm an insane person. I'm like, no, yeah. I can't tell you until you unless you saw it. Yeah. And you'd be like, how did he read that? Or like, oh, that's what he was doing. He just was advanced, man. It was awesome. But he says things like. Man, I was doing everything I could to stay on the floor. I was listening to what the coaches told me. I was playing as hard as I could. I was, you know, I, what a shot, what a concept. Man, I just wanted to play. I just wanted, yeah, what a concept, right? And that's that's good to have these guys, you know, um, um, here. Like, of course, they they don't even know where Northern Iowa is, and they don't know, you know, AG's playing career, all that stuff. But at least he's got that inside him, as you know, and he really conveys it well. And he's a great dude. I'm lucky to have him. All right, five questions. We don't do this. We say we're going to do it all the time. We don't do it all the time. Uh-oh. It's it's a shout out to Craig Kilborn as we finish up here. It's time for five questions. Okay. And all your travels. I didn't, I didn't even get to this stuff in England and whatever, so maybe some other time when you're bored. But um, who's the best player that you saw that was just never going to be in the NBA? But you're like, this guy, like the legendary guy from all these international travels, you saw just get buckets, but you knew he was never going to be in the league. Well, there's there's a couple, two, three of them. I'll give you Tony Dorsey, Birmingham Bullets, Nigel Lloyd, um, national team for Barbados, played for me in, in England as well. 
used to, well, back then when I was coaching, I was so young, I was practicing and we only had like nine guys on our team. So I had to get out there. I could never, ever stop them. Long arms, put the ball up here, shoot it, could never stop them. Those two guys were awesome players and really high level for, for having, you know, Dorsey went on to play in like Israel and a few places, pretty high level. Nigel just continued to score 35 a night in the British league for about 25 straight years. And Curtis Stinson, Curtis Stinson, uh, Ryan was my point. He came in like my last seven games of my first year at the Iowa energy in the D league. And, uh, he played at Iowa state. So it was kind of a local pickup mm-hmm. and, and, and I watched him and I was like, man, in the season, and I said, man, you got something, dude. I said, you come back here next year. I said, I'm going to put the ball in your stomach. It's going to be your team to run. And what happened was Curtis played the next four years, something like 165 games. We were in first place for all 165 of them over that thing. And everybody changed around him, right? Guys were coming and going every year. And, and he just, and, and it, I played him 48 minutes, like almost every game. Like he never came out and he ran the team. He got those late buckets and he just, all he could do was win. And, and I just, I was, I real as it's like, it, it, he never got a call up. I couldn't believe he got the MVP of the league when it could not get a 10 day. And I just was like, please, somebody let this guy put a Jersey on for 10 days. And it never happened. Breaks, breaks my heart. Cause he was really, and is a great, a great player and a great dude. And he's also got a young son coming. That's going to be a stud. So that's, that's my top of the list for that one. Okay. You were, after Northern Iowa. By the way, do you remember your three-point shooting career number at Northern Iowa? Yeah, it's like 47 or 48, maybe. Yeah, 47%. 47. Yeah. That's a question. All right, so we have two more quick ones, maybe three. <laughs> okay. okay, when you go to, to – you're the player coach in 9091 for the Derby Rams, a.k.a. the Derby Storm, a.k.a. the Derby Turbos. Did you ever call a play for you? Did you ever come out of the timeout tied down one where you said, Are okay, you I'm getting the ball? Me? I used to say that all the time. I gave myself the total green light and I never subbed myself out. So, <laughs> but I also played, uh, there's another guy on the list. I also played with this incredible guy named Ernest Lee who led the nation division two in scoring for two years, six, four big shoulders could just scoring machine. I pretty much gave him the ball when it really mattered. It didn't, it didn't matter that much over there though, Ryan, but when it, when it did, he got the ball. Okay. Last one, because I'm not being, um, genuine if i don't ask this is there ever a time where kyle flops or just dribbles towards the hoop and falls down on purpose where he gets the call where you feel guilty um probably <laughs> i was trying to think guilty's, guilty's awful strong there's a many times. what about in film room when you guys are going through stuff and you see one of the the one of the, those things he gets away with, like you guys must start howling, laughing and seeing how mad the other guys gets. Or when Kyle doesn't get the call where it was so absurd and then he spends the next four possessions arguing his point. There have to be some funny moments there. You know, well, there's some cringing moments when he does that and he doesn't get it and they're laying it in at the other end or whatever. And there's there's also some some, you know, I think. I think that like the younger guys, Freddie and OG, those guys look at him and and just say. Like, how does he know, like, how to do that or when to do it? Or, you know, if he goes up and does that and 
nobody catches him and there's no whistle and somehow he still gets a pass off like that's crazy it's, right it's, that's you know, that's like because he's on the ground yeah. it's not like he's in yeah. the air doing yeah. this stuff or right? once in a while right and he'll go up and there's nothing there and then he has nothing to do but fire a line shot at the rim and it'll go in a three will go in or something you know and you're like you know and i think some of it's pretty much you know well, I don't know. I think I think we decided to say, you know, hey, their guy's flopping or their guy's getting a million calls or whatever. We finally deserved one. Usually is what we probably say. Yeah, <laughs> that's usually human nature. We're like, well, no, we were owed sure. that one anyway. So yeah, you know. for sure. For uh, sure. I know it's been a tough season. I really appreciate your time. Looking forward to you guys getting back to Toronto. I know you guys are staying in Florida for a while through the draft, free agents, all that stuff. But I'm sure the whole crew can't wait to get back to uh, a city that has so much support for you. So thanks a lot, Coach. No, no problem. I love listening to your show, man. You're smart as they come and. I dig it. So thank you for having me on. Well, I appreciate you saying that because there's some Toronto fans that probably disagree with you a little bit, but that's all right. <laughs> well, about 50-50. <laughs> that's, that's all you can hope for these days, right? <laughs> this episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. La Quinta by Wyndham has everything you need for your next business trip. From free high-speed Wi-Fi to fitness centers to free bright side breakfast with fresh waffles, eggs, and more, book direct at LQ.com. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Todd Graves is the founder of Raising Canes. I got to meet him, I don't know, the first year we met down in Baton Rouge. Um, he is one of the big parts of my LSU experience over the last decade plus. So I'd like to consider him a friend. And I'm really happy for him, man. I'm, I'm happy for where Raising Canes has gone over 500 uh, franchises right now around the country. I hope I have that number right, right? 500 yeah, plus? Almost 600, yeah. Almost 600. Okay, cool. I didn't want to short you any. And he is part of a new show called Restaurant Recovery with Discovery Plus. Those have been out now for weeks. There's two more episodes coming out where celebrities come by, where he stops by kind of local mom and pop shop, the the, the backbone of kind of the restaurant industry. But I want to start with your start because I'd heard about you when I met Brandon from Walk-Ons and he's like, oh, you're going to meet Todd. You know, this guy started Chicken Finger Place here on campus and you know, now there's this. And I was like, wait, what? So give me the inception of the idea of you saying, I want to start a place that serves only chicken fingers. And now you've turned it into this. Yeah. You know, right. It was a college dream. And I think that's why I resonate so much with college sports, right? It's like this started when I was in college and, uh, man, just had a dream to start a chicken finger restaurant. Um, I'd seen that point that, you were going from boneless chicken. This is back in the early nineties. Right. And going to, to bone chicken to boneless chicken and then dipping sauces. Right. And there was concepts that were just starting to specialize in chicken strips or fingers. And I was like, man, this is a good trend and I like it, but I wanted to start at the North gates of LSU because I was a college student and, you know, I wanted to just hire college kids and serve college kids. So I wrote a, uh, wrote a business plan, um, ended up getting the worst grade in the class, just classic. Right. It's kind of legendary around LSU. They say it was a failing grade? grade. And the teacher took the concept and competed. None of that's true. It was just a B minus. He was an easy grader. Uh, but I was actually <laughs> glad he did because he said, Hey, your ba- plan's good. You know, because I worked in the I worked in college and restaurants and bars and things like that. So I wrote a good plan. But he said the concept serving just chicken finger meals, you didn't really do your homework because in QSR, quick service restaurants, McDonald's is adding variety. All of our adding variety. And that was the big deal then. And he said, so you're not really going to trend in your industry. So you get a, you know, you get a B minus. And, uh, but for me, in my mind, I was like, you know what? And this is where the concept of one love, Racing Gaines Chicken for one love, do one thing and do it better than any, anywhere else. 
I mean, do one thing, do it better than anybody else. And so I just didn't let it discourage me, man. I went out, talked to the banks. They told me no to. Went out and worked in refineries and Torrance and El Segundo and went in commercial fish in Alaska, raised enough money to reconstruct an old dilapidated building, North Gates of LSU, and the rest is history. You, you went through that a little quick for me because I have <laughs> to ask about some of that. But I mean, it's great. Like, I wrote a paper for a film course in 97 where you had to come up with a movie concept and then pitch it. And I was like, what you need to do is revitalize the Marvel characters and you should start with Spider-Man and the audience is already there and whatever. And I got to see, they were like, it's too immature. <laughs> now, granted, yours worked out a little bit better than, than mine did is, is the Marvel thing took off. But uh, Did the Marvel thing take off, man? You had some good vision. Yeah, but that. it never, I mean, there's difference. You went out and made Chicken Fingers. I just was oh. like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buy another script program and a how-to book here and not do anything with it for a little while. So when you were thinking of this, were you thinking, hey, I want to start my own business. I want to work for myself. I love restaurants. I'm trying to figure out this lane because there's, I feel like there's some parts there that I need more depth on of you identifying a hole in the market. Because I have a couple of friends that have started restaurants, started bars, and I just know their mind works differently than most of ours. So they'd be driving through like a strip mall area and there'd be an mm-hmm. empty spot and they'll go, what is missing in this neighborhood? You know what I mean? So sometimes it's not even that they're passionate about the product. They're passionate about filling some kind of void. Yeah, well, that's what entrepreneurs do, man. They, they, they find a need or they recognize a need and they fill it. That is the definition I use for an entrepreneur. And so for me is I was, you know, growing up, I was a kid that had, had the lemonade stand in the neighborhood, right? You know, I mean, I, I asked my parents if I could borrow the, the, the lawnmower and the edger and weed eater to go cut grass for, you know, 10 bucks a lawn. Uh, and then I actually hired my friends later and uh, we made flyers and I created a business. And I, you know, I'm all you know, 10 years old at this time, right? And so I was always entrepreneurial, but I love the food business in high school and college. I worked in it. I just, I like food. I like working with people, cooking and serving people. Like, look, I like serving people. I like working drive-thrus, you know? So, so I just graduated, upon graduating college, I'm like, I knew I wanted to start my own business, being entrepreneurial, but I knew I loved the food business. And I knew that this concept would be great for college students because, you know, I was one. Now, when the banks turn it down, I mean, the, the paper part, I'd heard that story years and years ago. Um, who knows? You might've just been horrible at writing, you know, maybe that hurt the grade <laughs> more than anything else. But when you decide to move out West, like everything is single-minded, raise enough capital, like you're, you're catching fish in Alaska. You're working out here as a boilermaker. What was that experience like? Because that's tough work. I mean, I know you work hard, but is it at waking up every day knowing, okay, all of this is because of the next step? Yeah, and I'm real fortunate. I mean, the, the, the greatest thing that happened to me throughout my whole adventure on you know, the chicken finger life I've lived is the fact that it was so hard to start it, right? Because I had to work so hard for it that I always appreciate things. And I still appreciate every restaurant opening, all the crew I hire, I appreciate the communities we do business in. And so, you know, I was just on this, I had this dream. And so, doing things like become a bowler maker and go work in refineries. And, and it was really hard work. We worked 90 to hundred hour weeks, um, sometimes up to 100, 120 a week, you know, and but you could make some really good money in a short period of time, um, learning to do things that I've never done before, right? Like going into towers in the refineries and, you know, guiding in large, you know, vessels of things they're putting onto these, uh, these stacks and columns with these huge cranes. And so that was pretty exciting. And, and actually those bowler makers were more encouraging to me than anybody else. They're like, you're here to start a chicken finger restaurant, man. 
you know, you're going to do it. You know, they saw how hard I was working. They were the most encouraging group. Same with the group in Alaska, man. These are a bunch of hardworking people. And you talk about insane work. That was, you know, we got about four hours of sleep in a 24-hour period and not even contiguous during the peak of the season. It's like, go grab a nap for an hour, go grab a nap. That's why so many people get injured too, because when it's the peak of the season, you're just tired. You're working around, boats are slamming into you. You got, you know, high waves, you got all this stuff. People got hurt because they got tired. But, you know, it just fueled that dream and it kind of, it solidified it. It was like, you're not going to stop. You're never, ever going to give up because you put, in, put so much into this. So you open up the first one on the, on the gates there, a campus. What is the value in being connected to an LSU brand? Like my friends now, when they see them pop up, you know, my buddies that you met, they're from Denver. They're like, hey, we got a Raising Cane's here. Like, oh my God, like we got one. They're like, that's the LSU place. And I mean, look, it's, there's not an LSU logo on it, but starting it locally and, and being connected to a really successful brand as well. What is that relationship like for you? Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, it, it's it's nostalgia more than anything, right? It's, you know, this college student that starts and then starts feeding college students, but, you know, opened up in 1996, uh, August for football season. So that's when we got our first volumes was before and after the game. And people had these great memories with it, right? And they came in and they associated that with LSU football. Then they associated with LSU basketball because they would see me sneak out from the restaurant when a game started. And I was talking to everybody, come to Canes afterwards. Then they, I'd be there frying their chicken through late night. Same with the basketball games. We did things like Canes Challenge. If the team scored 70 points, you got half off Canes. So they came and they had those memories. Same with baseball, you know, girls gymnastics. And we, we just tied in with the school so much. And I would go speak to classes, right? You know, I was, a little, I was just, just out of school, right? But I'd be speaking to business classes. Hey, here's how you can achieve your dreams, things like that. And then when we got some dollars, we started sponsoring at LSU and doing those things and to really tying ourselves into, uh, into, the, uh, into the community. And so many of those grads, you know, if you, college is just great years for people. And when you have that nostalgic, you know, feeling about a place, then you become evangelical about it. You tell everybody and then word spreads. So it had a lot to do with our success. I think that's why I give so much back to the LSU community and then Baton Rouge in general. How come they're so good? And I, this isn't an ad. And obviously you've done reads here. And I was I was thrilled to just have the relationship with you here. But I mean, it is that good. It's it's that good. I, I was somewhere in Louisiana where I was trying to find the closest canes and it was so far away. I just took an Uber and I was at a food court mall and a guy recognized me. He's like, what the hell are you doing? Like, it wasn't like I was on Hammond or something or Boosh, <laughs> but he, he was like, what are you doing here? And I go, I wanted some canes, man. And I, I don't know, like there had to have been a lot of times where I think with food, you're trying, you're trying, you're trying to get it right. How did that process work? Yeah. You know, so this is just what I believe in. I believe that you should do what you're good at and what you can consistently stay good at. Right. And so that's where the whole Raisin Cane's chicken fingers, one love comes from. And so since I concentrate on that quality chicken finger meal, it's just like from that first restaurant right? Where I made sure we had the exact chicken that I wanted, right? I mean, down to the, at that point, chicken was a little smaller. It was about 1.2 ounce average. We're about one eight, one nine average. And so that goes down to the exact bird, the bird breed, the bird weight, the bird processing, the bird, the freshness coming in. Like it's those details down on those things that make it. It's the marinade, right? Some people call it brining. We brine for 24 hours. I do not compromise that, right? It goes in. It's the egg wash. I mean, look, there's 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 quality of milk and there's quality of eggs. 
right? I mean, it goes down to having that. There's cuts of flour and the seasoning I use, right? And so you have to constantly try the seasoning because it's different parts of the country and you have different things that affect that flavor, right? All the way down to what we put in the sauce and we bake it in-house every day. Look, I picked out the tea and just doing tea was a two-year process, right? Because it comes from four different countries from around the world to make sure that tea is the best. But since I concentrate on that, I can do that. It's that insistent, it's like really kind of obsessive compulsive, you know, feeling towards quality. And as we've grown, I've never lost that, right? I never compromise. I never use less than quality ingredients. Like I've never gone down on that, right? And so all the, some of the experts are like, man, you realize if you saved, if you just cut back 10%, people wouldn't notice and you'd make this much more money. I'm like, yeah, they would. You know, it's called a death by a thousand cuts. And so with, with growing the way we are, we're in 30 states and we're also in the Middle East, the sourcing becomes pretty vast, right? So I spend a lot of my time working with my expert group on supply chain making sure in all of our regions, all the stuff we get is good. And it's, it's, it's one of the things that we do. And look, I really believe it's a competitive advantage. If you're obsessed and pulse about that, you know, it's like, it's going to be tough to beat that quality. Has there been time? I'm sure there's, there's answers. I don't know how much you can share with us. Is there one go-to story that you have about something you had to turn down an opportunity you had to turn down, even though it would have meant life-changing money for you at the time, because somebody else wanted to compromise what you were doing supply wise, maybe internationally or something like that. Yeah. 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 You know, that's another great question. Yes, absolutely. Look, so, so I have just about all of our, our uh, restaurants are company owned. I own them now and we started off franchising in different areas. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we're, we're, we bought back the franchise we had. And so and that's because of my obsessive compulsism, right? And we had great franchisees, but let's say if we're operating out of a 95 out of 100, like company-wise, they might be operating at 85, which is like way better than any other franchise group out there or whatever deal is. I would, it just drives me crazy. And so it's that controlling deal. I'd rather partner personally with our internal restaurant partners. We call them restaurant partners. They can, you know, they're part of our group. And I partner with with them because look, they're the ones with the sweat on their brow. He or she, you know, every night going through doing what they have to do and doing being the Todd Graves of their community. You know, that's the people I'd rather partner with. But anyway, we're a fr- franchise international, but in the United States, I think we can operate them best, uh, better than anybody else. So anyway, what were we talking about? I got off on that. That's no, it. no, that's that was actually really insightful because I didn't know because I think a lot of times people be like, "Hey, did you start this going? Well, I want to franchise this out." You yeah. Know, were you always yeah. thinking that way? Yeah, I, so, uh, yes, I, I was because I thought we'd grow a big company base, but I actually thought franchisees could do a better job than than we could company wise in their markets, right? And and they did a good job, but not as good as us, right? Because we live it every day and we know our business better than anybody else. So that was the choice. And so yeah, getting back to what you said, which I think was a really good question, is if I would have turning down out, opportunities, right? Right. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, well, if I would have sold out early and thought about going for money is I could have sold franchises to the entire country. Once we were doing well, I could have just made it and just car bombed the United States, grown, and our quality wouldn't have been there. The fanaticism wouldn't have been there. I, like it wouldn't have, we would have grown too quickly internationally, same way. We have serious interest all over the world. And we could have disfranchised out, hey, let's get our money and look, we'll do this, we'll support you, blah, 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 blah. And we would have ruined the concept because we would have grown too quickly and without the right partners. And eventually we wouldn't be a long-term uh, term, uh, uh, restaurant company, is which I want to do. I want to grow old with it. Okay. Restaurant Recovery, Discovery Plus, it started April 15th. So the episodes are up. I was checking them out this morning. And I think the motivation behind this for people who have to understand where Todd's head is at all the time is that 
is awful. Uh, I, I don't want to phrase this the right way. COVID was awful for so many restaurants and small businesses. It actually, your numbers were up because of drive through correct? Right, right. So because of that, that motivated you to do what? Yeah, go help out those people we were taking the business from, basically, right? You know, we're up 10%. Wow, you're crushing it, right? But then you're seeing all these independent family-owned restaurants that are struggling and then some closing, right? And if you love the food business and you love restaurants, you understand how important neighborhood family-owned independent restaurants are, man. They have culture. They have character. They're just, they're, they're special. And when they go away, they're gone forever. They're usually replaced by a high-rise or a chain, and we don't need any more of those, right? And so I decided to go create a show called Restaurant Recovery. I understood the power of television because I've done it before. And uh, literally hired a going back to entrepreneurial roots, hired a production company and said, "Hey, we need to do a we need to do a show showcasing what these people go through, how important their small business these are restaurants uh, that are to them, so people understand and go out and support small business in general, especially restaurants." How many millions did you spend on this project? All in about four point five, and that was out of your pocket. So for at first, you're thinking, oh, this guy's going to promote this new show. He's building the brand. He's building the brand. Sure, certainly, there's there's brand awareness value to this. But you, Absolutely. you paid for all of the episodes to be made and then paid for what? the Yeah, I paid for the improvements and everything else. Yeah, Discovery picked it up later. We partnered with them. But it's, you know, if they're going to buy a show. It doesn't cover what, you know, a first season is, right? And so we wanted to do high-quality production. So things cost money. And then the budget was a million dollars, a hundred thousand for all ten of the restaurants helping, but I blew that budget, so probably went about a million five on that. And so all of it together came in at that amount of money. And you know, we get great brand recognition. People see, they see it's genuine, and of course, we have great goodwill that you get from Canes, but it's legit. And you know, I could have put those dollars towards other massive marketing efforts, right, and got actually more exposure for other things, and just did a donation to these restaurants. What's important is when you watch these episodes and when people do. Then they start, they, they understand what small business goes through. And then I think when they think, hey, look, I went to Cane's, you know what? And I want them to go to Cane's, but I want them the next time they're hungry, say, oh, I need to go support that local, that local uh, restaurant. What was the best part of, of putting these shows together and, and saving these restaurants? Man, I mean, look, when you, know, when you give, you get more back. And that's just so true, right? And so it just felt good to be in a good position with me and my team to be able to help these people and to have them, you know, appreciative and understand that what we did for him really helped him through a rough patch. That felt good to be able to help out good people. Last thought here. How much of the success of a, I think when it's a service, small business, you know, yours started off small. It's not now, but how much of it is the person versus the product? You know, I think it's the people, man. I mean, like, like if you think about Raising Cane's, we have a very focused menu. You could go out and, and, copy that. You know, it's not that hard to copy that, but it what, what, what makes it better is, is that somebody cares. There's a founder that lives and breathes it every day. It's a, it's part of my DNA. And then my team, we care. And I care about my crew who then cares about my customers and the communities they do business in. So if we all weren't driving that, you know, it's a product's a product, but you want everything else to go around it. That makes it so special. Look, people come to, to Raising Cane's, our frequency is as high as any other quick service restaurant out there, as high as any of them. And we, ha- we serve one thing, right? And so you think about all that variety and all those things everybody else has to catch all those occasions. Well, they come back. Well, they come back because the food's good and it's craveable. Uh, but they also come back because it's the people. This restaurant means something, you know? It's all those great things. I'm really happy for you, man. And I'm, I'm thrilled, um, you know, going back to, I don't know, I think it was like 08 or something. And they were like, yeah, you're going to meet Todd. He's a chicken finger guy. And I was like, all right. 
I got to meet him. And then next thing you know, my, my bill was paid for. And I was like, how'd that happen? They're like, no, he's doing pretty well. <laughs> We're doing good, man. I've enjoyed the friendship too. So I'm coming out to LA this summer. I'll definitely be there in the fall for the UCLA game, LSU. We got to hang out, party a little bit, and go to the game. Yeah, it sounds good. Um, and congrats on everything, man. We'll talk again. Right. Appreciate it, buddy. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari, 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. Life advice, rr at gmail.com. I appreciate all the great feedback we got on having uh, Josh on last week, investment-wise. I know that whenever it comes to that kind of stuff, uh, there's going to be differences of opinion, philosophies, um, you know, whatever. I, you know, I always hope people have an open mind about it, realizing like it doesn't mean, you know, I've, I've watched them on TV a bunch. I've disagreed and I know that I'm armed with far less information and insight and experience in the business uh, about that. So I think that's kind of cool that almost all the feedback I got, even if you know some people had some issues about some other things. Um, just some of the different things that we're going to try to do from time to time. I mean, I probably don't do it enough, but I'm always trying to find like the right person. The right person I think is both a good guest for just the podcast in general. You know, there are plenty of educated people out there that I'll just go, I don't really have any relationship with the person or if I'm not hundred percent sure how they're going to be on the air. Like you got to remember that's also part of what we're doing here too. But I just thought he was, he was really energetic and you know, the, the advice about the kid going, I'm getting so-and-so's book of business was amazing. Because other guys reach out to me too, and they were just dying laughing, being like, "That's so true." So there you go. Anyway, uh, so we'll get back to what we're good at here. By the way, weird dream night. I don't. I have a couple friends that have rules about sharing dreams. Because this is really stupid. Why this is coming up? So allow me to derail this for a second. But guys have had an argument in my friend group of college for years about what would be worse, being in jail or being at war. And I'm like, give me war. A hundred out of a hundred times. And guys are trying to tell me like, no, not at all. And then I had one of those weird dreams where I was in jail in and out of it all night. I think it's because I got taping done taping Kyle so late. Like I finished with Bill almost 10 hours ago. So I ate really late after that podcast. And then I went to bed. It was one of those deals where you're, you're in bed. And I remember the dream perfectly. And then I would wake up and be like, that sucks. You know, I'm in jail. And then you're like, oh, wait, I'm not. That was a dream. And then I go right back to sleep. And it was like, right, like going back to jail. And it was just so weird, Kyle, because <laughs> jail was like, it's not that bad. Like, trust us. We get a bad rap. You'll like it here. And I was like, I don't think I'm going to like it. Was it like longest yard jail? It was kind of like the in-between part before the real part. But the in-between part, everybody's like, you know, a lot of that's just social media. It's not that bad. You're going to like it. I was like, I'm not going to like it. I'm not going to like it here. And then I would wake up and be like, oh, all right. And then I'd fall back asleep. And then it was one of those deals where I knew the whole time. I'm like, none of this is real. You're just asleep again. It was weird. That Intense. is weird. 
I don't know if I should be even be sharing any of that kind of stuff. That's I mean, right. It it's really not like stupid. you're trying to figure out what it meant. I just, I know what you're talking about. I don't, you're falling yeah. in and out of a dream and it's like, oh shit, I'm back in this one. It's like, I've been trying so hard to get back into dreams that I like before and now I can't fucking escape this one. It's strange. Wait, you try to control your dreams? Maybe no, we won't do any no. life advice. I'll just interview you. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't want to do a rabbit hole thing. But no, like sometimes there's a dream that's like awesome. And like, you know, like I said, like I used to have a dream where I was like a football, like I, I got like superpowers and I was like a football player and like I yeah. just didn't tell anyone. And I'd be like, damn, I'd love to be able to go back to that dream. But now you the only dream you go back to is jail. That sucks. <laughs> I mean, there's other stuff to it, but I'm not going to bore everyone to death with it. I don't think it meant anything other than I ate food really, really late. And I also watched The Wire when I fell asleep. I was watching the Hamsterdam episodes again. So maybe that's all part of the programming. But it was just so annoying because I go, this isn't real. Like, none of this is real. And then guys just telling me over and over and over again. Like, it's cool. Like, no, it's not cool. Anyway, I would still take war over jail just for the gear alone. Okay, life advice. (laughs) Uh, I'm not going to use any names here. I need your advice. I'm a 22-year-old 5'10 black guy in a white city, which helps my odds with both black and white girls in a medium-sized white city. You know what? My man here is uh, absolutely right about that. I've uh, I've heard this and I've seen it. And, you know, my man is using the stats to his advantage. I'm a handsome dude. I'm young and I work for, don't say that. Okay, we'll leave it out. Just started a gig where he's in management, 75 grand a year. Easy check. Great salary, especially for my age. Yeah, you're doing great, man. 22. I feel like I'm rolling in money. We'll start putting some of that away and listen to the Josh Brown episode. I've always been good with women and attracted dimes. TBH. I can see why this guy's in management. Confidence through the roof. I've settled down with a great girl and I'm so happy. She's a, well, I'm going to leave and leave this out. Um, she's got a good job. She's intelligent. She's nurturing. Um, she's also a few years older than our guy here. He said she's hella mature. And she's beautiful. He even attached a pic. Yeah, she's gorgeous, man. And then he asked the question, my life is awesome, right? Here's my problem, bro. I go to a great gym every day at noon. It's right before I have to work during the weekdays. And I don't know. It's my routine at this point. There's a girl named, which we're going to leave out, at my gym who's an absolute smoke show. He attached a picture of the girl from the gym as well. And yes, she is also attractive. Um, Ryan, she is so bad. <laughs> that means good, folks. She constantly asked me to spot her on squats. Like, come on, bro. Yeah, that was always awkward. Whenever I was asked to to squat, spot somebody I didn't know, male or female, I'd just be like, mm, getting in there. Um, and even it suggested we become workout buddies and lift at the same time. What do I do, man? I love my gym and I don't want to switch, but if I stay around her, I'm eventually going to slip up. I love my girl, but this girl is a stallion. (laughs) Please help. Where do I go from here? I tried talking to her, but she straight up said she doesn't care if I'm in a relationship. Help. I love my girl and I hate that I'm considering this and I'm really just worried I'm going to slip. Okay, man. Well, the first thing I would do is delete this fucking email. All right. Delete this from the sent file. You just said it yourself. You said you're so happy. You said you're so happy, right? You get all these things that are working out. 
when there's a lot of people, you'll have this lane's working out, this lane's working out, this one isn't. It sounds like you got a lot of lanes checked off here. You have good perspective around you. You obviously know if this female at the gym was telling you, like, she doesn't even care your relationship. She's telling you it's on. And I think the fact that you're even worried about the gym part, like my prediction, I would bet money that you're going to slip up here. Um, because I know what it's like to be a guy and I know the rules that you'll kind of apply to yourself when it comes to stuff like this. And then ultimately, I, you know, I don't want to go too deep in the weeds in there, but it's kind of like the guy that is a serial cheater, right? And he'll say like, well, if it's not in the same town, okay, that's a qualifier. So now he's mentally conditioned himself to think that he's not, it's kind of a, it's not a lie. If you believe it, it's well, if we're not in the same town, you know, when kids were younger, guys would be like, man, different area code doesn't, doesn't count, you know, and that kind of stuff, which is all ridiculous, but it's immature and, and people say stuff like that. And then it'll be somebody's with somebody serious, but they're still doing something and they go, well, you know, we're not engaged yet. And then they're engaged. And then it's like, well, we're not married. And then it's, they're married. And it's like, well, I'm not going to do anything once we have kids. And you just, it, you just keep pushing. It's not even the goalposts in this case. It's pushing the standard of, of what you think you morally have to address. You're just putting that off more and more and more. So the fact that you're like, I love my gym. Well, what do you love more? You love the girl that you're currently with or your gym? And if the answer is your gym, then maybe you don't like the girl that you're with now as much as you thought. Um, I don't, you can't just go at a different time. I mean, it's the only time that you can go, but here's the problem. And I know this, and most of us men are wired this way. Even if we're in a relationship where we know we're not going to screw up, we like that attention. You know, we like, if you're the guy in the gym that the hottest girl in the gym is talking to, you like that. It's an ego boost. It makes you feel better about yourself and it's all temporary and it's all bullshit, but in the moment it just feels great. And you clearly still need that. But what you're trying to do is you're trying to serve two different parts of your ego at the exact same time. Because if you're telling me that the main girl that you're with is smart, nurturing, you just said, I've settled down with a great girl, man, and I'm so happy. Three sentences later, you're talking about the chances of you cheating on her with a girl at the gym who asked you to help her in the squad rest. So I think I already know where you're going with this. and. At 22, I could say you're probably too young to really realize what what it means to have somebody great in your life and be so happy, but that's not fair either. And it's also, there's plenty of guys that are 40 that say the same shit and then still screw up. So if the person that you're with is something that makes you happy long-term and around the clock and good times, bad times, right? As cliche as that sounds, whatever satisfaction you're going to have from going astray here, it doesn't really add up to what you have now. But, you know, most of our minds won't really work that way. In the moment, you're not going, well, geez, this is a temporary, you know, this is, this is all really cool in the moment, but this won't mean anything because then there's also the other side of it. And it's impossible to kind of put yourself in that position is obviously what if she did this to you, you would freak out. Um, and what happens if she found out and she's like, all right, later, man, she's older than you. She's mature. She's got a good career. She can meet somebody else. And she tells you like, see you later. You slipped up. 
I, you know, I'm not doing this. And the fact that you're going to have to deal with the guilt of hiding it or figuring it out and all that kind of stuff and being younger and changing your bed sheets all the time because you're afraid of a stray strand of hair. You know what I mean? Like shit gets old, but you're 22. So it's not old to you yet. Kyle. Um, yeah, that's, that sucks. But I think, um, you could decide that, you know, everybody makes mistakes and you could decide that like, you're the age, like with life advice and stuff. A lot of the stuff that I like people enjoy for me is like the mistakes I made. Um, I'm to the point now where I could say like, yeah, I wouldn't do that now. So not that it would be an awesome story to tell how you cheated on your girlfriend with this hot girl at the gym, but you can sort of decide right now if you're the if you're at the age where you're not going to be making those quote unquote mistakes. So, you know, you're in control of your own destiny and, you know, I'm in control of not stealing GPSs at the age of 27. So, like you can just you you can totally feel good about yourself here if you do if you do if you take a certain path, it's all I'll say. You're not out of control of this. No, you're in control, but you're not. You know, you're right. I mean, it's really, really easy for everybody to say, hey, here's what you should do and here's what you shouldn't do. And if everybody just followed that, we'd all be a little bit better off. But we just. I mean, there's a reason why when you walk into a bookstore, there's a million books to help you and they just keep selling over and over and over again. And they're all saying the same stuff. So. um, There's nothing like the power of buying a book being like tomorrow, day one of the rest of my life. Life advice book series next summer. No, I'm actually Bring in the books. middle of something. Yeah. It has nothing, <laughs> it has nothing. to. It's not a, uh, you know, that would be the worst if I were doing all of these and just putting them in chapters, just publish all these emails. Yeah. And it'd be like, <laughs> I didn't even have to write anything. That'd be incredible. <laughs> That's like a good second book idea. You're like, yeah, I'm kind of out of, I'm kind of out of ideas. Um, all right, here we go. Another one. No name, no shit. Stats are unimpressive. 34, way past my physical prime. Stay in shape, do well enough with the ladies. Wow, we got some real swingers on the pod today. I have the dating equivalent of the old man hoops game where there's nothing flashy about it, but I can still knock down some proverbial buckets as I know the dating game so well at this point. All right. Recently, I've been dating a girl I really like and everything's going great. Problem is we're getting to the point of meeting friends and I'm not sure whether I should be proactive about telling her of a past fling who's still sort of around. She's one of my fringe friends, not core, but still around from time to time. She and I hung out for a while last year was basically, Hey, it's quarantine and this is easy, convenient sort of thing. No one's judging. I called it off at the end of 2020, no hard feelings. Now I'm wondering whether I need to tell the new girl at all of this, uh, proactively or whether I don't tell her and hope she never finds out. But then if she does, she might think I was trying to keep it from her. The other girl isn't going to be at small dinner party size group stuff. When it comes time for the 4th of July type larger gatherings, She's enough of the group to get that kind of invite. Thoughts on letting sleeping dogs lie or proactively telling her something she may never have learned. All right. The first thing is you didn't do anything wrong. All right. Everyone has a history and you're going to have a history at 34. So you have to, you know, judge because this is another thing men do be like, oh, I don't know about her, you know, history, history, history. And then it's like, yeah, what about yours? You ever look in the mirror? So everybody has a history to a certain point. Um, and I don't think it's something that you should, I think you're a little too worried about this uh, than you should be, to be honest with you. Now, I think it's cool that you're kind of concerned. So that shows a good side of you. That you're caring, you know, you're aware of people's feelings and all that kind of stuff. Right. But what I think is impossible to predict here is, I mean, how well do you know the girl that you're with? Because this can go a bunch of different ways and they could be good or they could be bad. Because if you tell her, 
she could say, well, is he telling me because he cares about her still? Right. Or she'll go, oh, who cares? Like, I've hooked up with this guy and this guy. And you're like, oh, okay. Um, what do you owe the person that you just started dating? Do you owe the person beyond dating? Like, if you were to marry somebody, oh, hey, by the way, and then it could be too late, right? Like, I can't believe you never told me this, especially if it's somebody significant. But it doesn't sound like this girl, the previous, let's call her the COVID girlfriend, it doesn't seem like she's enough of the group that it's ever really going to matter that these two, the girl you're dating now and the other girl, have any history together whatsoever. So, yes, trust me. Nobody wants to be the guy at, let's say, a couple solo cup barbecue deal and you're kind of the new guy on the scene and you're dating a girl and then she's showing you around and there's that one guy named Steve who's looking at you a little sideways like, oh, hey, and you're just, you're just in your head going, all right, something's going on here. You know, like that part sucks. But I don't know if the COVID girlfriend is going to be like that, if she's going to care. Um, and I don't know if the new girl is going to care because the other part of it, she could just say, what are you talking about? Like, I don't care. We didn't know each other then. Why are you even telling me this? Right. And then that backfires. But then if you do tell her, she could, she could maybe be really upset about it, even though it wouldn't be fair for her to be upset about it. So I'm leaning towards don't worry about this that much. You're overthinking it. Um, you know, if it comes time where you become really, really serious with the new girlfriend, I mean, really calculate how many other times you're going to run into this person because you're in a town. Like I, I think of a town, uh, I don't know. I, you know, if you were in a, you could be in any major city, but whatever your social circle is, if you're going to run into somebody from time to time, like I don't know that you have to go over everything historically with somebody that you're with, especially if there's no overlap at all. So I would, um, I would not do anything on that one. Word, say nothing. Unless she's the type that's going to like drunk dial you or show up to your house at midnight with a boombox. Like you're never going to have to worry about this. Just leave it alone. You have the right thought. What's that in reference to? Was that a John Cusack thing? It was, didn't he show up with a boombox outside somebody's window? Say anything. Yeah, I just couldn't believe the reference. It's probably just a meme reference for you, though. You've never seen the movie. Oh, God, I hate that you're fucking right about that, honestly. I mean, I think I've seen a clip on, like, you know, Fandango or something, you know. Oh, well, then you know. See it. Watch it with your girl. You'll like really? it. It's, okay. it's one of the first. It was a very weird thing for when it came out because it was the first kind of rom-com that guys liked. Huh. It's one of my favorite movies ever. I love it. Yeah. Really? I love that movie. Holy yeah, shit. they did a rewatchables with Apatow on it, didn't they? I know that. I mean, I don't watch every rewatchable movie, you know, but yeah. I'm telling you, you'll like the movie. All right, good to know. I'll put it on the list. Now, like a lot of millennials, you're probably, do we have Saruti with us yet or no? What up? Have you seen Say Anything? No. No, I mean, yeah. I get the reference, but I'm, you, you know me, I kind of have the policy that like nothing holds up. Yeah, like, Saruti hates dated. anything historically in film because he just is like, wait, <laughs> landlines this movie sucks you think <laughs> nothing holds up so he hates all movies well that was also in the that was also in the 80s right that was an 80s flick right yeah i also have the anti-80s thing going so there's really a lot of things going against me watching that movie where are you on cusack uh i don't i kind of like nothing cusack like he doesn't really he doesn't really move the needle for me but i don't dislike him you know i know my dad really liked that movie where he thought he was an alien what the what was that uh what was it called? Ah, I forget. I don't know. It was some movie where Cusack, that was my first Cusack movie I ever remember, and he just thought he was an alien. Um, I got to tell you, you're stumping me here a little bit here. Um, Martian Child? 
No. John Cusack alien movie. I, I must have missed this one. You're telling me this was an 80s movie? No, it was like newer. Oh, the kid. He adopts a kid who thinks he's from Mars. Maybe that was it. What was that called? Yeah. Martian Child. That's I think that's it. Yeah, that's what we called it. Two minutes ago. My dad liked that movie. That's my that's my memory of John Cusack. Well, I'm going to go ahead and uh, tell you that might be why I didn't take for you. <laughs> All right. That, that might a movie Not where he adopts. Work. Right. He adopts. We get a 35 on Rotten Tomatoes on that one. I had never even heard of it, and I'm a big fan, but I knew, you know, that that would have been one. I don't even remember not being interested about it 14 years ago. The funny thing is, Cusack would have been your guy if you were in the 80s. Knowing you the way I do, Saruti, that would have been your kind of guy. You would have been like, oh, yeah, Cusack's in it. Done. First Wait, night. Who's the who's the Cusack comp to, like, 2021, then? I'm not going to say he's at Tom Hardy's level, but you would have you would have defended Tom Cusack. You would have uh, now, nah, Tom. Har- I'm telling you, Tom Hardy's a different seating for you, but you would have really liked him. Huh. You're like, oh, better off dead. In saw it twice. That's a huge compliment to Cusack. Wow, I love you. Know I love Hardy. I yeah, but I I can't really, I can't really compare anything to Hardy. So that that might have been a mistake. I'm trying to think of like a a secondary movie person. Was he like a like, heart? Th- was he like a got like a like a uh, Ryan Gosling kind of type was he like the good looking no, dude who was in all those no. movies? I think he's like a a between because it wasn't like Gosling. I can't figure out Gosling for the life of me. If this guy's like really who he is, he might be the coolest guy of all time. Mm-hmm. I mean Hardy, I I don't know. I'd be afraid of where that was going to go that night if you were hanging out with him. And I think Hardy would be incredibly unimpressed with everyone around him. Where I think Gosling would would give you a chance see see where it went where Cusack are you a big Paul Rudd guy uh yes and no it depends on the movie yeah I think Paul Rudd's a better comp for Cusack okay it's not like, hard that's a good comp he's that's that's a big deal I, I get that when I say Hardy I don't want to catch any shit saying Rosillo compares Cusack to Hardy I'm simply saying how much I know I love Saruti loves Hardy and defends him at all costs it is and true. I think that I think it, you if you were around eras ago you'd be just saying like yeah are you kidding me two dollars i'd be at parties talking up cusack interesting yeah yeah you'd be like look i think he's you'd be saying between gross point blank better off dead say anything you'd be like the guy's guy's really versatile that's all i'm saying right could not see cusack playing bane or any villain in a bat no 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 that's not that's not what i'm doing not what i'm doing check out gross point blank that one still probably holds up a little bit a little bit but I really liked it when it came out. So I've, I've seen it multiple times. I think that was a solo theater experience while I was still in college or the year after. I'm not sure. The All best. right. Really interesting dialogue here. Our man is from Iowa City. Home of Ryan's uh, 12-1, and 1, excuse me, 12-0 and 0 Hawkeyes. 6'6", 190, lean. Bench 195, five reps, five sets. Good for you. I would start trying to find a way if those five reps are clean for those five sets, I would add, I would, I would rather get you to like 205, five reps, three sets, and then see how many you can do on sets four and five, and then hope you can get 205, five or five. And just keep going. 312 marathon. All right. I'm not going to talk to you about fitness anymore. Jesus. That's amazing. <laughs> Decent in hoops. I would hope so. All right. So this guy's doing well. My wife and I have a six-month-old daughter. She's incredible. 
kind of weak on the bench. That's not me. You know. um, but we were struggling to find time to work out the way we used to. While I can sneak in a jog or take my daughter out in a running stroll, or I cannot get to the gym for lat back by try day. Don't get me started on missing the squat rack. Uh, as an ectomorph, I'm one missed lift from looking like a string bean. Between my career and family, I could just not justify the gym commute. Last March, a couple with a one-year-old son moved in across the street. We have a lot in common, get along very well. We have had each other over for dinner. I helped the husband install cabinets. Um, I even let them borrow my snowblower and power washer. There are talks of a lake house weekend getaway this summer. You know it's real if you're talking weekend lake house together. Last month, we were in their basement, and I saw the Holy Grail, a rogue squat rack, barbell, and bench. They even had a nice rubber floor tile set up for deadlifts. I commented on how jealous I was that we didn't have any space for a home gym. The husband said I could come over anytime to use it. The offer was nice, but did he really want me in the basement working out at 5.30 a.m. before work? No. Where's this going? Last week, I took him up on the offer, and I excitedly went over, and my daughter fell asleep. Oh, so he did invite him over. See, I thought this was going to be, should I ask him if I can lift at his house? Because I was going to say, if you're this kind of like fitness guy, and you're doing a lake house, and he hasn't offered you to come over, like, hey, you can come over, use this whenever you want. Because that's a weird setup. Like I'm close to somebody in my neighborhood and I want to be able to say like, Hey, you can work out in my garage whenever you want. But then I also realized with my taping schedule, that might be something that I don't want to do. So I didn't offer. Now I feel like a jerk and hopefully they won't hear this on the podcast. So he goes over, he goes, I excitedly went over after my daughter fell asleep on arrival. My fantasy was quickly shattered. He only had a set of 25, 10 and five pound plates. Altogether, he had 125 pounds. I can do, I can do it light, do it right for only so long. After the workout, the dad said, come over anytime. But now I'm not sure that I want to. So he has a rogue rack with bench and barbell, and it only goes to 25, 10, and 5. After the workout, the dad said, all right, we already said that part. Here's my question. Is it weird if I buy a set of plates to bring over and start using their home gym setup on the reg? Am I gym shaming him? Could I gift him 45-pound plates knowing that it's for me? As previously mentioned, I have helped a decent amount with projects and freely lent my tools. <laughs> uh, I would like to think you could just buy the 45-pound plates and say, these are yours. These are my gift to you, but also to me. If you guys are talking lake house, I think that's acceptable. Now, we all know that we're all different. and any of these circumstances that anything could go in a number of different ways where if you bring over the 45 pound plates, then he says to his wife, he's like, you know, I used to like them, but that was weird. And you're like, what's weird about it? Because if this, here's what's crazy about all of us is the one thing could happen and we could describe it in completely different ways if we want to, because if they wanted to be offended by it, they could, even though you're gifting him something that usually costs, you know, if they're decent, a couple hundred bucks here. And you'd have to think, that at some point, if he has a rogue rack, that he would want more weight, but clearly he doesn't want more weight. So now that's difficult. So yeah, it's kind of selfish, but it's also a gift. So there's a lot of different things at work here. I personally would say, hey, here's some 45s. I'm going to use these. Um, but again, if you're going over there working out like crazy all the time, that might get old too, because it sounds like you're really into it. Uh, I would, I would try buying the plates. I think a lot of people are going to disagree with my advice on this one. I would try buying the plates. They're his by the way, but I wouldn't overextend my welcome on how often I went over there. All right. 
Um, and maybe there's a way where you could say you're training for something. Ooh, there you go. So look, you've done marathons. You got good marathon numbers. You'd be like, look, because of everything that's going on, I just want to throw a little more weight around because I'm training for this thing. So now you have kind of a built-in excuse for why you are, you're not really gym shaming him, but that's, that's just not a lot of weight. That's, that's really weird. Um, that's really weird that you have this nice setup and pay for this kind of stuff, but not want a little bit more weight. So, um, good luck, but you know what? There was another part of this that, that kind of got me thinking as all my friends have now gone through the kid deal decade plus every couple falls into like two categories, the couple that has kids that thinks they can never do anything. And the couple that has kids that find a way to still do stuff. And I know not all kids are created equal as far as how difficult they can be, but I feel like there's couples that I'm very close with that want to be just shut down forever. Like, oh, we got kids. We can't do anything. So, you know, your wife, six-month-old daughter, you want to pitch in. That's great. I don't know what the breakdown is. I would tend to believe at this stage at six months, the daughter's more connected to the mom. That's just science. But like you just can't, you just can't go to the gym now. You just can't go to the gym. There's other people at the gym that have children, I believe. <laughs> I could do a polling of this, but maybe this sounds like a non-parent, but I'm just always surprised how often I could tell like, wait a minute, they go to Mexico and they go nowhere and they both have a one-year-old and the one couple that goes nowhere is like, ah, you know. You can't go anywhere. And then the other couple's like, no, we just figure it out. We're not going to just shut down our lives. So yes to the 45-pound plates, but maybe yes to the gym membership again. RR at gmail.com. So Rudy, where are you on the kid stage? Is Whoa. that a bad question? Uh, TBD, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Pandemic Probably retract that. Off a little bit, but yeah, uh, yeah. you know. At some point in the future, I don't know. None of my friends have kids, so I don't want to be the first friend to have a kid. Is that Why? is that weird? I don't know. I just feel like it's weird. Like none of my close group of guys, like I have friends that are girls that have kids, but it's different. Like not, I have a core group of like four or five guys, and I don't want to be the first. I don't know. Just a weird. I'm in my own head about it. That seems like a dumb reason. Really, I feel like you'd align with me on that. Okay. Why? Why would dumb? I not? Why would I care about being the first? I don't. I don't know. Because then, like. Oh, it's like, oh, like Shruti's not going to be able to come. This isn't a water slide. Because then I'm, I'm not going to be on the Xbox as much. I'm probably going to get judged. Like it's, you know, it becomes a thing. Then I'm, like, then I'm like kid guy and I'm not as cool. And like I stopped being asked to hang out with people. I don't know. I'm just, it's all, I'm all in my head on this, obviously. You've really thought about this a I lot. have. No, I'm, wow. I'm not joking. You think guys are just going to stop texting you all of a sudden? Kind of, yeah. Or they'll just, you know, they'll do something cool and they'll be like, ah, oh, he's probably got a kid. He's probably out. Even though maybe they I could ask you. Yeah, why why can't they? <laughs> why don't you send a preemptive kid text to be like, hey, just in case I have a kid before anyone else, I don't want to be de-threaded. Maybe this is more about this is all I'm I'm clearly in my own head because I don't think my friends would actually do that, but it just I don't know. It just it, that's what I've thought of for the last couple of years. Like, what can one of my kids like or could, can one of my friends have a kid you, first so then I could have a kid? Your stuff is always so good. This kind of blows my mind how insane this is. This is this is ridiculous. Imagine like your buddies just having a couple couple pops around the old campfire and they're like you hear about saruti like yeah he had a kid be like yeah not invite him to this lose, anymore lose his number <laughs> you hear what saruti went and did yeah he had a kid is that why no one's calling him 
you figured it out. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't worry about it. I'm not telling you to go ahead and now have one next week or something, but of all the concerns that you'll have, the stresses of of being a parent, that should not be one that's high on the list. Right, How about you, enough. Kyle? You uh, don't have a kid. In, do a, you, Kyle? in a word, no, no. <laughs> I do think that it's funny that Saruti's been to a million weddings and has no friends with kids, and I've been to no weddings and all my friends have kids. Who's doing it wrong? It's it's not that it's not that I don't have friends with kids. It's the close group of guys, the guys that I play Call of Duty with, the guys that I play FIFA with. Like things would change if I had a kid. Yeah, and we're on the same page. I got it. Yeah, it's just I don't know. I clearly clearly I'm wrong on this one, and I'm, I'm way but, too in my own head. I'm but you see honest. what I mean? Like I'll have friends that'll be like, "Oh, I can't play FIFA." Like why? Be like I have a kid now, and I'm like, you can't. You can't play a video game for thirty minutes because there's a child there. I understand. Look, I, I'm the oldest of five. I'm not an idiot when it comes to the constant demand. Like nothing is funnier than when you show up to somebody's house and it's a mess and they're like, sorry. And you're like, what are you talking about? Sorry. You have kids. They don't, they're not worried about the decorative stuff going on here. And that's why I also think some people that like do like home furnishing and all that kind of stuff. And then it's like, okay, but you're, I have, I have kids running around like this. None of this is that none of this works. I thought about it the opposite way, too, though, that if I did have a kid because I'd be up at like weird hours and stuff and probably wouldn't be sleeping as much, I might actually have more time to play Call of Duty, but it would be like at 3 a.m. and my friends wouldn't be up. So then it's like I'm solo. I'm playing solo Call West of Duty. West Coast Warzone. Kyle. California that's friends true. are up. I'll that's tell you that true. much I'll call right Kyle now. I'll tell you that much right now. <laughs> Just think how good your your hip flexors would get because you'd have have the kids sleeping in one of those weird wheeled strollers that just smashes into stuff and you'd be playing FIFA and then you'd just be switching legs back and forth as you just rock it back and forth. Yeah, there my KDR and duty would be the best it's ever been. There you go. All right. I think we covered it a lot today. I think we're good. Uh, that is a podcast and I'm every Sunday with Bill. So check out the Bill and Ryan deal on Sunday night. And then we're going to be Tuesday, Thursday now, probably through NBA free agency that takes us into July. So that is the new schedule um, instead of every other week jumping around. So again, subscribe, spread the word. Brian Russell podcast. Big shouts. Steve Cerruti, Kyle Crichton. Couldn't do this without you. Impossible for this production to happen. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.